0: Hey, it's Jonathan. Real quick before we begin, I want to encourage you to check out my weekly newsletter. Every Friday, you'll get a behind-the-scenes look at my investing, including current events and commercial real estate, deals I'm working on, and random personal things going on in my life. If you're interested, go to thesourcecre.com newsletter. That's thesourcecre.com newsletter. Okay, on to the show. Welcome to the Source of Commercial Real Estate Podcast, where we talk to the experts in all asset classes of commercial real estate. Listen so you can grow your wealth, expand your portfolio, improve your mindset, and live an amazing life. And now, your host, Jonathan Hayek. Welcome to The Source of Commercial Real Estate, where we discuss all things non-residential commercial real estate, including finding and funding deals, seeking opportunities, and using commercial real estate to live the life that you want. I am your host, Jonathan Hayek, and today I am talking with Tom Rowan with Fast Food Landlord and Rowan Capital. Tom, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing great. Awesome. I am really looking forward to this discussion. We are going to um, really hit on non-residential commercial real estate today. So looking forward to it. Tom, why don't we start out with you telling us about your background, how you got started in real estate and what your work looks like today?
1: Yes. So I started out about 10 years ago with a small fourplex and quickly realized that I did not want to deal with tenants And all the management and everything that comes with that. So we quickly pivoted to commercial real estate and with a focus on triple net lease. And now some of our tenants include Starbucks, Arby's, Applebee's, FedEx, and Staples.
0: Awesome. So... Uh, kind of a classic story for most of us non residential people, starting with residential, realizing all the headaches that it brings, and then uh, wondering if there's something better, something easier so um let 's go a little more into your portfolio, so focused on triple net uh, with national retailers. Tell me more about what your portfolio looks like
1: yes, yeah, so it 's kind of a mix um, you know we 've got those national retailers, but then we've also have um some multi-tenant uh, centers that have you know, a mix of four to six uh, tenants, and some of those might have a few national retail anchors, but then some local businesses. We also have some medical as well as industrial flex. So within that triple net lease space, uh, we kind of diversify that asset class a little bit between retail and some industrial and then the medical in there as well. So we kind of mix it up a little bit.
0: Cool. So let's uh, let's start with retail, um, and I want to address the elephant in the room. A lot of people, when they think of these uh, large national retailers like Arby's and Starbucks, they we think about really low cap rates. Some of these retailers can trade in the four to six and a half cap rate range. And so um, are you buying fully stabilized properties? Are you doing value add? What's your business strategy?
1: Yeah. So um, we start off with fully stabilized with long-term tenants in place that have been there for a while. So we know that they're um, revenue is stabilized. They're you know they've got a customer base that knows that location, likes it, and supports it. And then long term leases in place. So these are very low risk. Um, but also we know with these properties we're not going to be hitting any grand slams with them either. And so with these um, tighter cap rates on these properties, you know it's lower risk, but uh, we can still make them work out. And With the syndication, you know, sometimes people say, well, how do you make that work out without this huge value add? And one of the reasons is uh, we look and say, all right, what are the rent increases? So the appreciation over the next 10 years, typically on the properties we're looking at, it's a 2% annual increase. All That's built in. And then with the nature of the triple net lease, where the tenant is covering the insurance and the taxes and all the maintenance, we know on the pro forma, there's no variables on those expenses that the tenants covering that it's completely off our plate. So it makes it a lot simpler to know exactly what we're looking at over the next 10 years. So then the next, the last thing, the variable that uh, is probably either putting people in a crunch right now or giving them a little bit of ease is the financing portion and what the debt structure looks like on these properties. Are you raising all the capital? Or are you doing a 70% a you know, loan to value? Like what does that look like? And where are you getting the financing to make these cash flow and to really get a good return on them? And it was definitely a lot easier um, a couple years ago when you were able to get a loan for 3%, right? And if it's a six cap and you got 3% you got that three, 3% spread on it, that works really well. Well, right now... A lot of these triple net leases, especially the big the big names out there, the cap rate might be under what the you know interest rate is. So you've got to get creative and look and say, all right, how can we make this work, or is it even possible? And a lot of times we're competing against big national um, REITs or um, institutional buyers who are just paying all cash. Right, they're parking the money somewhere for a little bit. And so, what we found right now in this current market environment is working with sellers that are willing to seller finance at the interest rate that makes it work for us. So, if we're buying it at a six cap, you know, we really need that seller to carry back somewhere between a three and four percent rate. Um, if it's at a seven cap, we you know need to be um, somewhere in that four to five percent. So, we still want to get a minimum of two to three. Um, on the point spread of the interest rate versus the cap rate. And then with those um, planned rent increases every year, that just lengthens uh, the amount that we're able to get on the cash flow.
0: Okay. Really cool strategy. Um, I love the idea of getting these really solid national tenants with great leases in place. Um, let's talk about your. Um, let's talk about the markets that you're targeting. Are you targeting certain markets, or is it more on a deal by deal
1: basis? You know, it's on a deal by deal basis, but right now, really, we're keeping it very simple. We're looking at the Midwest. Um, I know these don't really matter a whole lot, whether it's across the country or really in our backyard because the nature of the leases and everything else, um, it, you know, it, they're strong no matter where they're at, but I just like the comfort of knowing like, Hey, this isn't my backyard. I can drive past this. It's within a three hour drive, whatever that may be. And, you know, we're in a fairly small tertiary market of about 70,000 people in Dubuque, Iowa and i I got a whole bunch of research done, right, and uh going through it, looking at the commercial real estate in our town, there's about two hundred and fifty million available um that we could potentially acquire just in this town of seventy thousand that are you know leased to national type tenants and I' looking at like, all right, well, that's more than enough to get started and get our feet off the ground like we don't have to go. Um, all over the place to do this. Like we can do this right here in our town. So that's been a major focus of ours to get things off the ground. But now, as we continue to expand, um, you know, we're looking at other areas as well.
0: That is uh, one of the many things I love about real estate. Is you don't need a, you know, you don't need a hundred properties. You don't need a billion dollars in assets. Um, you can start with. Uh, with a few properties. And even if it's in your hometown and um, it can make a significant difference in your life. Um, so tell me about the ideal kind of property that you're looking for. Um, are you ideally looking for single tenant properties? Are you looking for multi-tenant properties? Does it, does it just depend on the opportunity? Tell me more about that.
1: Yeah, really, you know, they're all different, all unique. So it just kind of depends on the opportunity. Really what we're looking for is a great location, so a lot of traffic, um, and then something that's more of a vanilla box, right? So we look at it and say, all right, is this location great enough that if something happens to the tenant, somebody else, they're going to be lined up wanting to take over this location? And then we look at the shape of the building and say, what else can we fit into this building? Is it... Uh, vanilla enough that we can squeeze a lot of different types of businesses in here and it's not just set up for one particular thing. So one example would be a car wash. If that car wash goes out of business, what else are you going to stick in there? Right. Like it's only made for a car wash. So there's not a whole lot else you can do with it. So we look at those and we say, all right, what are the other uses and what is the location? Um, and that's kind of our backup plan on if something goes wrong, we want to be able to backfill that as quickly as possible.
0: Cool. So let's talk about location. What sorts of things uh, make an ideal location and what sorts of things are deal breakers? You had talked about traffic counts. Um, do you look for a certain uh, a certain number in your traffic counts?
1: You know, it's all dependent on the tenant, uh, but there's things to, to keep in mind. So, you know, as traffic counts, it's where is this location in consideration to uh, multifamily, you know, apartments and that. So how many people are actually around there as well? Um, where's the location in consideration to people driving or um, coming home from work? So one thing people a lot of times overlook, but these national tenants know the system is if you think about there's a major road or highway um, coming into or out of your town. Um, If you look at where people are situated on the right side of the highway coming into town, so that's typically where people are heading to work, you're going to see coffee shops. And you want the coffee shop on the right side because People are going to take the right on red or use the right away to go in, get their coffee on the way home from, on the way into work. And then on the way home from work is typically gas stations. So they're going to be on the left side of the road coming out of town. So think about that. So I've seen a lot of situations where um, a tenant was on essentially the wrong side of the road. And it makes a big difference on which way the traffic is flowing um, in the morning and then at night and what tenant is there, depending on what's easier for them to get off the road and get back on the road quickly and make it a quick stop with those types of tenants
0: that is a really interesting uh concept um, i'll often see in offering memorandums brokers will advertise a certain property as uh, as a uh, heading to work side of the road and a heading home side of the road um, and that makes a lot of sense because on uh, you know heading to heading to work you might have like coffee shops and um, donut shops and things like that versus on the heading home side of the road, you might have uh, more like pizza places or pharmacies or things like that.
1: Yeah, 100%. The other thing, when you're looking at a multi tenant building, <clears throat> you want to know like, what is that mix of tenants? And what does it what's that customer mix like? So an example is, um, is it a Quick location that someone is running in. So let's just say Jimmy John's, someone is going in, they're grabbing a sandwich and they're coming back out and it's within a couple minutes versus, you know, a sit down restaurant that's going to be an hour. Same goes if there's like a dental office in that same location or an accountant or something like that. Like, what is that time that people are in and out or is it long term? And then what time of day are people there? If you don't have that right tenant mix on a multi-tenant location where if it's all long-term people and they're all there at the same time of day, you're going to have a lot of very upset tenants because there's not going to be enough parking. So the parking um, in like congruency with the tenant mix and the time of day and what um, type of customers they have and how long those customers are at those locations makes a big deal on getting that right tenant mix uh, to keep everybody happy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You hit on a couple really crucial things there. Um, Tenant mix, parking, um, traffic flow, Um, really, really important concepts when you're identifying retail retail properties, um, particularly if it's like an expiring lease or you're thinking, oh, this place might go dark. I may have to fill it at some point in the future if you want, you know, that really top notch tenant with a great lease. um, Those types of things really matter. Um, I want to go back to the, you touched on seller financing. Um, So I want to talk about finding deals and finding sellers that are willing to work with you. Um, So how are you finding deals right now?
1: What is your strategy? So a big thing is just asking first off, and then there's an educational component that comes into it. A lot of people just don't understand Creative financing, seller financing, you know, whatever the terms you want to call it. Um, But it's simply asking. And what I've found is a lot of times it's not only the seller that's not educated on it, it's the broker as well. So, depending on the listing agent or the broker, if they're not attuned or educated on the different structures that you can do, the different creative financing things, a lot of times it's a lot easier to go directly to the seller because then you can let them know the benefits that come along with uh, doing seller financing as far as uh, cutting down on the capital gains taxes and several other benefits that go with it. And so it's simply a little bit of educating and then getting directly to seller and asking. And a lot of people just don't simply ask because they're afraid of saying no, but really in this market, it is a numbers game of if you've asked enough, you're gonna get a seller that um, you know sees the benefits of it and that is willing to do the carry back and especially um, you know depending on their situation your situation so it's kind of just a numbers game right now of, of finding the right people and then educating them on all the benefits that go with it
0: so I uh, I'll be honest I've tried the seller financing maybe a hundred times. And um, I would sometimes rather just bang my head against a wall than try to talk to someone about seller financing. Um, So I want to go in deeper because seller financing sounds great. And in a lot of cases, I really do believe it is the best Scenario for both parties, uh, because so often sellers, for whatever reason, they want to get rid of a property, but they don 't want to pay the taxes um, and they or they don 't have and they don 't have another property to go into, and so they still want the income, but for whatever reason they don 't want this property anymore, and so it makes a lot of the seller financing makes a lot of sense because they don 't have to have the property, but they could still have income coming in, uh, but still trying to get that concept through to a seller um, is really, really difficult. And so can you walk me through a typical conversation, um, either, um, you know, either through a broker or directly to a seller? Um, what does that conversation look like when you're trying to introduce the idea of seller financing?
1: Yeah. So right now, uh, the biggest thing probably that comes to mind is a seller's wanting to get a cap rate that was more realistic a year or two ago, right? So they're saying, hey, my property's worth, you know, whatever it is at a six cap or a seven cap. And in reality, in today's market, given where interest rates are at, it's more like an eight or a nine cap, right? So they're stuck on this value that, you know, was there two years ago. And so they say, hey, this is worth a seven, you know, whatever that price is at a seven cap. And, you know, the conversation is, okay, well, we can get that price um, but the only way we can make that work is if the financing, you know, we can get that spread that we need. Same as if we were financing from the bank, if they can't do that, and they say, well, we have to do this through traditional financing. Here's the interest rate we're going from the bank for us to make this work. Then here's what your sell price has to be. And then that changes things. Right. So when they see that um, it makes them willing to work on it because they're essentially, um, you know, shifting the. Um, equity that they have by a couple hundred thousand in some cases. It really depends on the size of the property. Um, but when they see that, they understand a little bit more. And then if you're really able to um, break down and show, unless they're doing a 1031 exchange on it, you can show what those capital gains taxes will be and what that would look like if it's spread out over five years or 10 years or whatever that time frame is, that they're actually getting a lot more of that time. And again, it kind of just depends what you want to do, some fact finding of what situation is a seller in? Are they trying, are they in a partnership where it's going to get a little sticky if they're doing seller financing? Are they trying to retire? Are they trying to do estate planning? Like what is the situation? Because once you know their pain point or their situation, that's when you can really get creative and develop the financing to match what their situation is so it's going to be different for everybody Um, and then you just you know you've got to make the deal still work so if the numbers don't work they just simply don't work you can't try squishing them in and getting them to change so uh, really it's it's figuring out their situation figuring out those pain points and then adjusting and seeing if you can get that aligned with what you're trying to do
0: are the deals you're pursuing on market or
1: off market? Typically off market. So there's off a few, market. Okay. we've done some on market, but right now it's, it's that combination of off market and seller finance, which both take a lot more work than, uh, you know, just traditionally finding, you know, a couple of years ago, it was find a property, um, get the financing lined up boom, 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 and done deal. Right now, it's just a lot more work um, doing some outreach, creating relationships, um, just putting in a lot more time.
0: Where does the majority of your lead gen come from? Are you cold calling? Are you sending mailers? Are you just networking locally?
1: A lot of networking locally. And what that looks like is You know, we've created a network list of potential properties that we're interested in. So with the actual landlords themselves and then networking with lawyers, accountants and um, bankers to see what they have in their networks. We're constantly keeping uh, in touch with the lawyers, bankers and accountants to see if they have clients who have some sort of life event. If they're changing what they're doing, they have a business partner breakup, a divorce Um, a health event, um, estate planning, any of those sorts of things that would change the current circumstance of what they're doing and need to sell some real estate. When you're...
0: Asking for a seller finance deal, is it typical terms that you would get from a bank? Is it, Are you looking for like a 75% loan-to-value or are you bringing a higher down payment in order to get these deals done? Or what are typical, typical terms like for a seller finance deal?
1: Um, so... You know, that's, that's another part is, is it going to work for us? Typically, uh, we try to go in and leverage as, mo- as much as possible. So if we can get the deal done for, you know, anywhere from zero to 20% down. And so it's better than bank financing. We'll do that. And so it's that mix. It's, it's this combination of, you know, what are you putting down for the down payment and what is the interest rate at that? you know, you can do um, that's still going to make a cash flow and generate the most cash on cash return for us that we can, um, plus put us in a good position when that term uh balloons and whether that's a five year, or 10 year, or whatever that set up as. So just a lot of different combinations to this. And so it's just finding that right combination that works for you, your investors, and the seller.
0: And so, are are all of your assets currently in Dubuque, Iowa?
1: No, uh, we've got majority in Dubuque. Uh, we've got one in Peoria, Illinois, Lacrosse, Wisconsin, Green Bay, Wisconsin, and Des Moines, Iowa. Okay,
0: I'm 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 just thinking through markets, and Dubuque being a small town, um, I'm gonna guess that a lot of the owners of commercial real estate in dubuque are local and so i'm wondering if that's really an advantage versus going to a place like indianapolis or nashville where you know an arby's or starbucks could be owned by someone from you know anywhere across the country um do you find that it's an advantage being local to dubuque and having Having assets in Dubuque, knowing the accountants and attorneys, and um, having your network there—is that an advantage to you?
1: Yeah, it's definitely a huge advantage. So there is still um, properties owned in Dubuque by you know ABC investor out of California and whatever read out of New York, and but I would say the majority and the opportunity, a lot of the opportunities we've gotten are. Through these local um, investors as well, but on the deals that we've gotten from uh, landlords or owners from outside of the area, we've um, we've been times where we've been at the table with two or three other potential buyers, and the sellers from outside the area have gone with us because we're local, and so that has given us an advantage of. You know, them saying, all right, these guys are gonna close the deal because they're local and they know what's going on with it. It's right in their backyard, they know you know the tenant, they they patronize it, they know everything else going on. So I think we have an advantage of acquiring the stuff locally, whether it's a local property owner or somebody from outside the state.
0: When you acquire um uh you know a, a national retail property what's what's your long-term business plan? Is this a, you know, there are lots of different directions you can go with um, with net leased properties. You could buy expiring leases and try to get an extension. You could get something with eight or 10 years left on it and just hold on for the long-term. What um, What is what is your strategy? What's the long-term play with these?
1: Majority of them are, Long term, uh, what I would call legacy properties, will probably end up uh, passing down to our children someday. And so the strategy is you know, one, if we're, we're familiar with the property, we know, even though it only has three years left on the lease, we know that, okay, it's a busy location. Their revenue is great, their revenue to rent ratio is good. Um, they're gonna renew that lease like no matter what. So we look at that and say right, they're gonna continue to be there, um, especially the local ones, where somebody outside the area might not know that the strength of that tent because they're not local, they don't see that. And so really it's it's buying that, holding it long term, and then leveraging it with refinancing, you know, every four to five years and you know, growing with additional properties from that. Can you tell
0: me about how you identify the strength of the tenant? Um, let's say you know you mentioned Arby's before. So let's say let's say there's an Arby's and um, you're hemming and hawing. You know you're you're trying to think about okay what what's the likelihood of this Arby's still being here in 20 years from now? Um, you talked about financials. Do do your leases require your tenants? to report financials?
1: Some leases do, some do not. And so really there's there's like a couple easy things is we drive to the property and we look how it's upkept. Is the current manager or whoever's running that like taking care of the outside, the inside, like everything else? Like how is the actual property being ran, especially right now where it's hard to find, you know, good employees and staffing and everything else? you know, we look and say, all right, have they been limiting hours? Are they, you know, staffed properly, all these things. And then we'll look at Google reviews to see if they've been getting positive reviews, negative reviews, what that looks like. Is it, you know, a location that's uh, trending downward or trending upward? And then sometimes we'll just simply go in, ask for the manager and we'll tell them our situation. We'll just say, you know what, what is the revenue looking like? Are you guys up or down? Um, and sometimes they will share with us the actual numbers, which is absolutely phenomenal. Cause then when we have those, we know like what that rent to lease, um, revenue ratio is, and it can really help us make that decision. So it's kind of get, get your boots on the ground and see what's actually happening at that specific location, um, to know like where it's looking at, uh, on a long-term trend.
0: Cool. Can we dive into, uh, kind of a recent interesting deal that you've done? Sure. Okay. Um, so yeah, so think about either, either single tenant or multi-tenant and I'd I'd love to just kind of get some details on it and and figure out how you took it down and, and what your plan is. So can you tell me about a recent deal?
1: Yes. Um, so we recently closed on a multi-tenant, um, let's see, there's four tenants in it uh, on the corner of what I would call main and main. So one of the busiest, uh, traffic corners in the city. And it was a, um, long-term, uh, uh, the guy currently owning his dad developed it 30 years ago, so this property had never changed hands. Actually, of the 17 properties we have, um, I think one of them, only one of them, has changed hands one time. Like all these properties that we've acquired, we are the first buyer, typically from either the developer or you know whoever whoever uh, started the property type thing. And so this property, you know, we. We had bought one from the seller a year prior, and we knew that uh, they were kind of just doing some estate planning and stuff within the family. And so we talked to them. They had a price. And, you know, what happened was there was a couple vacancies and there was a new tenant looking at coming in. He didn't want to deal with all the TI and the build out and everything that goes with that. And for us, you know, that that was not an issue to deal with. And so we worked out, um, you know, a price and, you know, acquired that property, then got the lease in place and worked out the TI and everything with the new tenant.
0: Any seller financing on that one?
1: There was not. Okay. Um, and so
0: was the, was the price, the price must have been attractive enough or there was enough opportunity there where it made sense with bank financing?
1: Yes. Yep.
0: Okay. Is there an anchor tenant at that strip center?
1: Yes. I would say the anchor tenant is Papa John's. Um, they've been there for, you know, it's a national tenant. Um, they had a long-term lease and they've been in that location for probably 20 years. Uh, the other one is Midas Muffler and they've been at the location. So they were just, they had a year left on a 30 year lease And so they were getting to the end of their term as well. So some other people might have looked and said, all right, well, we got one at the end of a 30-year lease. we got some other ones. And then there's a few um, local tenants mixed in there as well.
0: Yeah. And so what happened with Midas? I always love these situations where you've got a great tenant, but uh, an expiring lease. So has that played out? Are you in negotiations with them?
1: Yeah. So they just uh, renewed, you know, a brand new 10-year lease on that. Uh, We knew because of the strength of location, um, the limited availability of other lots to buy in town, the rate that they were currently paying and the rate that we were offering them was well below market and, or, you know, replacement if they were going to build new. uh, There's no way they'd be at, you know, this rate. So, you know, it made sense for us. And we knew the options were limited for them to um, go a different direction. There
0: must have been a calculation there on your part because, really, you have it to me. It seems like the landlord, the owner, has the upper hand in that situation. If it's a great location, you're at Maine and Maine, um, and let's say Midas does leave if you can't come to terms with Midas and they do leave, if you've got an A plus location, I would think the likelihood of you getting another great tenant in there is pretty good. Am I wrong?
1: Yeah. And there's all kinds of, you know, so we looked at it and said, all right, what other uh, tire shops or oil shops or whatever would possibly backfill this? And Actually, the the lease rate was low enough that not only the national tenants could afford it, but even a local, um, a local shop, uh, repair shop could could have filled that building. So, you know, we look at our tenants as long term partners. And yes, we probably could could have really really gone up on the rent because there was no options left, and it was, you know based on CPI or wherever, kind of we want to determine at that point in time. Uh, But we want to make sure it's sustainable and it works um, for the long term for both parties. So, you know, we look and say, what can we do to make this a win-win for the tenant and for us as the landlord? Because we want, we're in this game for the long haul, and we want that to work out for the next 10, 20, 30 years.
0: Uh, Tell me more about your your kind of philosophy and your strategy in negotiating leases. So an argument could have been made that you could have jacked up Midas's rent um, to market rent or maybe even above market rent and um, really gotten as much value out of that out of that space as possible. It sounds like you potentially gave Midas a little bit of a discount in order to um, keep a great tenant there, um, not have the risks of vacancy, and just continue that strong relationship. So can you tell me a little bit about your philosophy in renewing tenants? Is it better to um, keep a great tenant even if you're sacrificing a little bit in rent each month? Or is it better to just get the the highest amount of rent that you can at any given
1: moment? You know, there's a a little mix in there. And I think one thing people don't value enough is the time and energy it takes to get a new tenant in. And, you know, so we've had some other spaces where we've backfilled. And, you know, when you're looking to do that, it's like how much time and energy are you putting in versus keeping the current tenant in there? And what else does that involve, including, you know, adding in the TI and, you know, negotiating stuff with a new tenant and then building that relationship and just all the other things that are included with that. So really, like we look and say, what is the um, easiest way to do this and like, what does it look like from a dollar perspective? and. Over the long haul, are we going to be further ahead, or is this going to be something we look back on and kind of kick ourselves on?
0: Yeah, I think you brought up some great points. Um, a lot of people don't consider the cost of backfilling. Um, I talk with some investors when they see, "Oh, this is an expiring lease. I can get them out of you know get that tenant out of there, and I can get another tenant in there that's paying double the rent." And that might be true, but um, what sometimes, uh, investors aren't considering our broker fees. So if you're just doing a renewal, a lot of times you as the owner, um, can negotiate that lease yourself. Um, you might have some attorney fees, um, if, if you want an attorney to look over that lease, but, um, a lot of times your broker is not involved in the negotiation of a simple renewal. And so you're potentially saving a good chunk of money there. And you also mentioned the cost of TI, A lot of times if a tenant is renewing, um, there, they might not be thinking about TI. They might be happy with the way things are, especially a property like a Midas. It's kind of a no frills kind of, you know, auto shop that, you know, there's not a lot that maybe needs to be done. And so they're just happy to stay there and, and happy to continue doing business in that location. Whereas, um, if, you know, they leave and you get a brand new tenant in there, you might get a new lease, but you're probably going to have to put a bunch of money into that location to accommodate this new tenant. And so I think, you know, those are really good things to think about that that you brought up. The the the, co- the potential cost of backfilling space.
1: Yeah, we just had one that we um we backfilled and we we're negotiating the lease rate. And they said they didn't need any TI. They were going to do the build out themselves and everything else. So we were willing to go a little bit below market rent because for me, it was no work and, you know, no stress or no headache of, of that part of it was sign the lease and you guys are starting here, you know, the first of the month. And so there was no period of construction and build out and worrying about contractors and getting all these approvals and all this other stuff that goes with it. So, you know, for the sacrifice of maybe a couple hundred dollars a month, um, we didn't have to worry about that. It was, you know, here's, here's the start date next month on the first and, you know, here's the rent and the deposit. So, so really it's, yeah, that time, energy, and stress that goes with it.
0: Yeah. I mean, these lease negotiations are part science, but also part art really. Um, because, you know, I know I've, you know made some um, you know made some concessions and lease negotiations, depending on like what 's going on in my personal and business life if it 's like you know I have way too much going on right now and i can't you know i can 't can't take on this huge project or maybe I am up for this huge project or you know the the tenant doing the build out themselves is going to save me so much time and hassle because I know. My contractor is backed up a certain amount of time and so it's going to take that much that much more time to get the build out done and so um i think you know that's part of what i love about um commercial real estate is just all the different scenarios and and the, the negotiation involved so i i think it's fun <laughs> um as we tom as we get in towards the um towards the end of our conversation here, I want to go over some top tips and uh, wrap up. So um, let's go into what's the best deal that you've ever done.
1: Oh, wow. Um, I think the first, one of our first commercial properties and it was off market, uh, you know, from a bank and you know, that recommendation And we just, we had the cap rate. We didn't really have to negotiate anything. And it was actually our first triple net lease. And the reason I say it's the best is one, financially is really good. Number two is opened my eyes to the rest of the triple net lease world. Because once I got like three months into this, I called up the banker that introduced us to the seller. And I said, is something going on here? Or am I, am I missing something? He's like, what do you mean? I said, well, they haven't called yet. Or I haven't had to do anything. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, that's how triple net lease works. You don't have to do anything. The ACH deposit will come in the first of the month and then we'll take your loan payment out and everything else is the profit for you. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is absolutely amazing. So I think just having that first deal that introduced me to the triple net lease world and how hands-off and passive it was, that definitely is uh, my favorite deal.
0: What's the worst deal you've done?
1: the very first um, fourplex. So it it, it was amazing. Um, I knew I had to get into the real estate world somewhere. I had to take action. I had to do something. And um, I had an inheritance check from my grandpa for, it was, I think like $4,700. And I had a little bit of money saved up. So I bought this fourplex in the worst area of town. And this was a seller finance deal where I got... I bought it. It was $90,000 and um, I was able to get it for 10% down. So $9,000. And at the time um, I was in my twenties and I just knew I had to get in. But sure enough, as soon as I got in, I learned a lot of lessons because we had a hoarder in one, we had drug dealers in another unit. um, We had other questionable things happening in another unit. It was just a mess. About a month after we bought it, we'd gotten this torrential rainstorm. There was about four feet of water in the basement that I had to get cleared out. Um, it, one thing after the next, the cops were always getting called. Um, it was just an insane amount of things. I experienced probably every worst uh, possible scenario that could happen of somebody owning a fourplex. And we eventually evicted all the tenants. Um, rehabbed the entire place and sold it. And what felt like um, an entire lifetime of experiences, I looked back um, after selling it and realized we had only owned the place for 13 months. Um, But for me, it felt like 13 years and beyond. So that was the worst experience. But I took a lot of lessons away from that. The biggest lesson is I don't want to own anything where people can live. A lifetime of lessons in that one deal,
0: (laughs) uh, Tom, what's your top tip for finding deals right
1: now? Really getting out and networking. So, you know, meeting other people, meeting other investors, other landlords, uh, the bankers, the insurance agents, you name like handymen, um, people that are constantly out and about talking to people, um, Anytime you can get those deals coming back at you that are off market, they're going to be you know great deals. And sometimes if they're not, you at least get a first look at it maybe before anyone else does.
0: What's your top tip for raising capital right now?
1: Again, it's networking, getting out and letting people know that's what you do. And you're able to get them a great return um, on their investment.
0: And Tom, do you have a book, podcast or YouTube channel that listeners should check out right now?
1: You can check out everything at fastfoodlandlord.com and on social media at fastfoodlandlord.
0: And Tom, I assume um do you all do you take investors in um in your investments? Yes. Okay. So tell me a little bit about what you've got going on there. Um, I think I saw that you've got a fund open. So, um, tell me about the fund. Tell me about what kinds of properties are going in there.
1: Yeah. So we've got a 506C fund right now. Uh, we're doing a $5 million raise and the types of properties are going to be in there. We're going to have some stabilized, uh, high, high quality properties with national tenants, long-term leases, so, you know, some of those properties are, you know, Starbucks, Arby's, things like that. Uh, but then we're gonna mix in there some um multi-tenant properties with some value add. So we'll have that stabilized cash flow with the combination of some value add uh home runs in there as well. And um, you know, looking at the current market. And so with these, it will be we'll be going after the same types of things we have been and the success that we've had with finding properties off market with seller financing so we can get that gap and get that return that we're looking for.
0: Awesome. Tom, this has been great. I've really enjoyed talking with you about finding off market uh, non-residential deals and taking them down with seller financing. Um, If you can, yeah, if you're able to do that, you are doing something right. So Tom, I sincerely appreciate you taking the time out. Thanks for sharing about your deals and, um, and your expertise today.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Jonathan.
0: Okay. Take care, Tom. This content is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not financial advice, and it is not an invitation to buy or sell real estate or make any investment decisions. Hey, one last thing. If you listened this far, you would probably enjoy reading my weekly newsletter. Every Friday, you'll get a super quick read that includes current happenings in commercial real estate, updates on deals, and random stuff about my personal life. To subscribe, go to the slash newsletter. It's a quick read and you can unsubscribe anytime. That's the slash newsletter.